If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. If you notice in your bulletin, it says chapter 10, verses 16 through 11, verses 16. But as I began to work on this sermon, I figured I would spare you from a two-hour sermon and just drop you down to an hour. So we're going to uh, be focusing specifically on verses 1 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, This morning we begin a four-week Advent journey as we move into this year's Christmas or Advent series. As you know, we've been in the Gospel according to Luke, and so over the next four weeks we're going to focus specifically uh, on Advent and the Advent season. If you're not familiar with the term Advent, it simply means coming and is the word used throughout church history during this time of the liturgical year that focuses specifically on the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ in the incarnation as the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among humanity. In essence, Jesus came to us so that we could go to Him, go to the Father. Further, during Advent, as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, uh, the first coming of Christ, we also anticipate and look to the second coming of Christ, which which he will fully consummate his eternal kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. And so over the next four weeks, as we, uh, we will specifically focus on the hope, on the peace, on the joy, and on the love that is found in Christ and his work in coming to this earth, beginning this morning with the theme of hope. The Advent season is a time when our hearts are filled with anticipation and filled with hope. The words of the prophet Isaiah written centuries ago continue to echo through the corridors of time, reaching us even here in the 21st century with a timeless promise that transcends the ages. In the midst of a world that is grappling with uncertainties, and we can all affirm that wholeheartedly, in the midst of a world that is filled with anxieties and the complexities of modern, the modern life, the Advent season really calls us to, to pause and invites us to pause and to reflect and to rekindle the flame of hope within our hearts. Isaiah 11, 1-9 is a passage rich with messianic promise not only spoke to the hearts of those who longed for a Savior in ancient times, but it resonates with profound relevance to us still today. It beckons us to consider the enduring truth that just as God fulfilled His promises in the past, He remains faithful to His covenant with us in the present. The shoot from the stump of Jesse... The promised Messiah comes not only as a historical figure in time, but as a beacon of hope shining brightly in our contemporary context. Again, in a world that is often characterized by political unrest, by various injustices and personal struggles, the anticipation of the Messiah brings a message of hope because it brings a message of restoration and it brings a message of divine intervention, something of which we, which cannot be found in humanity nor in the institutions of man, but only in the one who is perfect, righteous, and just. 
So this morning, as we delve into Isaiah's vision, we will explore how this promise of a coming Messiah holds the power to transform our lives. And this morning, I pray that the hope kindled by Isaiah's words would ignite a flame within us, dispelling the darkness that often threatens to overshadow the promises of God in our life. May the promise of a coming Messiah serve as an anchor for our souls, a source of inspiration amid the complexities of our lives as we long for and look for and hope for the second coming of the Messiah. May this too then serve as we are the people of God as Christians. May it shape our perspectives May it fuel our faith and lead us into a season, this Christmas, Advent season, a season of spiritual renewal. Usually this time of year, I know it's the case with me, I'm like, man, I just want this year to end like I'm going to start fresh January 1 and everything's just going to be right, you know? And so it's almost at the end of the year, things are vamping up and busy and we're exhausted and it's like, man, we just need to get through the holidays, finances are tough, the economy's tough, whatever the case may be, we get to this point and we're just exhausted. May this Advent season fuel our faith and lead us into a season of profound spiritual renewal. Hear this church and hear it very clearly. This is the Word of God that we're about to read that we have already read, the truths of Scripture that we have already sung. The promise of Isaiah is not a relic of the past. It was written quite some time ago, but it is not a relic of the past. It is a living truth that speaks directly to the yearnings of our hearts in the 21st century. May this Advent season be a time of rekindled hope, a journey into the timeless promise of a Savior who meets us exactly where we are. So if you're able, would you stand as we read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Pray with me. Father, may your spirit be upon us this morning as we approach your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your truth. May we see Jesus and the hope that is found in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So before we jump into this text, there's a lot of background, really, when you get to Isaiah 11 that you kind of got to have have some sort of a a grip on. And so let me provide a bit of historical context for which this messianic promise was made. During the reign of Ahaz, who was king of Judah, uh, the kingdom of Judah faced various challenges. And Ahaz encountered external threats, particularly from the Assyrian Empire. And what he did was he sought alliances with, this, with, these, with foreign powers rather than relying upon God and the power of God. And so his reign was characterized then by unrighteousness, by un- idolatry, and a departure from God's commands. And then additionally, the northern kingdom of Israel, led by a series of unfaithful kings, had already fallen into idolatry and injustice. The people strayed from God's covenant, engaging in practices that were contrary to the Mosaic law. And the, the prophets, including Isaiah, were sent to warn Israel, both Israel and Judah, of the consequences of their disobedience and to call them to repentance. If you remember uh, in Isaiah 6 when Yahweh comes to Isaiah and calls him out and shows him his glory and Isaiah uh, is transformed by the Spirit of God in this moment, uh, he says, send me, I will go. And then God follows up by going, well, go tell him I'm going to destroy him. It's like, well, I don't, what? You know, who wants to do that, right? And so we see this over and over and over again with these prophets. And so amidst the backdrop of unrighteous rule of idolatry and political turmoil, Isaiah's prophecies contained messages of both judgment and hope. Judgment and hope, that which was a common theme. And if you know uh, any of your Bible at all, you know that's a common theme between the people of Israel and Yahweh, this message of judgment and of hope. And so in this passage specifically, There is a shift from the harsh realities of the present, this bondage to the Assyrian Empire because they joined forces with them and now God is using the Assyrians to punish them. He's he's so powerful, He's using the opposing army to discipline them. And so in the midst of these harsh realities of the present, we see this shift to a future vision of a future messianic kingdom, which then emphasizes God's grace and God's faithfulness to His covenant promises despite His people's failures. And so this serves, this passage serves, and all of Israel's history here serves as a hope-filled reminder for us that despite the unfaithfulness of the people of God, God's grace prevails. And even though we are often unfaithful to His covenant He has made with us and our commitment to Him, He remains committed to fulfilling His redemptive plan. And so I want to do three things from this passage this morning. I want us to see the Messiah in Isaiah's vision. I want us to see the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies in Christ. And I want us to see how this should give us hope, great hope in this life and beyond this life. And so with that being said, I'm going to begin by looking, or my first observation, discovering the Messiah and Isaiah's vision. We're going to spend most of our time here, and then we're going to uh, see what this what has to do with Christ and then our hope in this life. Discovering the Messiah in Isaiah's vision. So this passage opens immediately by revealing the Messiah as the root of Jesse in verse 1. You see this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
So the previous chapter, you may be thinking, what is this stump? What's going on here? Well, the previous chapter described Assyria as lofty and proud trees to be cut down by God. If you back up just a couple of verses, chapter 10, 34, and 35 says this, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power, The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so with a picture in front of us of this, of a vast forest of nothing that God has cut down, He has hewn down a vast forest of nothing but jagged stumps, that God has made by hewing down the power of Assyria, Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Messiah as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now we see this, see a contrast between the proud and lofty trees of Assyria and the lowly stump of Jesse. Again, and we know this narrative runs throughout all of Scripture, and it's so encouraging to us, but it confirms for us that God is in the business of demonstrating His glory by raising up people from humble means. This has always been God's methodology, the unimpressive green shoot that will sprout from the stump of Jesse is a person from the Davidic royal line of Jesse fulfilling 2 Samuel chapter 7. Apparently the same Davidic son mentioned in 9, 6, and 7, Jesse is David's father. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we know this passage well this time of year. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Although chapter 4, 2, which mentions a prophecy very similar to this, uh, chapter 9, 6, and 11, 1 employ different Hebrew terms to refer to the Messianic figure, the writer seems to be making the conscious connection between the branch of the Lord in 4, 2, the Davidic ruler in 9, 7, and the shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse in 11, 1. And so this twig, this branch, this shoot which is a sign of life within the stump. It's growing out of the stump, a sign of life within what is seemingly dead, is seemingly insignificant, will bear fruit. It will not die out and it will not be cut off. So the shoot is a symbol of hope and a clear contrast to the hopelessness of Ahaz's policies which nearly destroyed the nation and its Davidic line of rulers, the stump. A new shoot of Jesse will come and rule the people of Israel and rule the world. All of chapter 11 is a description of that son of David, that shoot, that branch, and the kingdom he will rule. There then are some characteristics that will typify The Messiah, look at verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Each of these attributes that Isaiah is giving to us reveals a fact of the Messiah's divine nature, providing a glimpse into the extraordinary wisdom and authority that will define His reign. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. He begins with that. The Messiah's anointing is not a mere formality. It is the very essence of God resting upon Him. The Spirit of the Lord signifies divine authority guiding every aspect of His life and ministry. That is not a fleeting presence. It's not a spirit that comes and a spirit that goes, but a continuous empowerment for the divine mission that He's been set apart to accomplish. If we were to go back and if we were to look in the Old Testament at seminal figures uh, that have come through time, you could find where it says at various times that the Spirit of the Lord rested upon this one or the Spirit of the Lord rested upon that one. Yet with the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord shall not rest upon Him in a limited capacity, but in a full and perfect capacity because He is the Messiah of God. He is the promised one. He is the one who would come and rescue and redeem His people. He will have the Spirit of the Lord in its fullness. The Spirit of God will come upon Him in its fullness. And with the Spirit, Isaiah says, comes wisdom and understanding. The Messiah's wisdom goes beyond human intellect. This is not... You know, my grandfather's pretty wise. He's been around a while. No, this wisdom goes beyond all human intellect. It is a profound discernment rooted in an intimate knowledge of God's ways. His understanding surpasses the limits of human comprehension, offering clarity in the midst of confusion. In a world that is longing for direction, our world is longing for direction and looking in a variety of places in which people think that they should go. In a world longing for direction, the Messiah brings wisdom that transcends earthly wisdom. Wisdom that can, the only wisdom that will give guidance through the complexities of life. Again, there are instances in the Old Testament where you find that a spirit of knowledge or a spirit of insight was given to some, but here the Messiah will have a spirit of perfect wisdom and understanding. Perfect. He will have wisdom and understanding in its fullness. This ruler will not make the foolish mistakes of Ahaz, who acted based on what made sense from a short-sighted, human political perspective. With the Spirit also comes counsel and might, Isaiah prophesies. In the Messiah, we witness a perfect balance of divine guidance and righteous strength. His counsel is not arbitrary, but perfectly aligned with the will of God. His might is not a display of force for its own sake, but a strength tempered by righteousness and justice. 
Because the Spirit of God will guide him. He will give wise counsel. He will devise amazing plans and have the power to carry them out. His actions, his action stands in contrast to Ahaz and the Assyrian king who made arrogant and unwise plans with the main purpose of surviving militarily rather than honoring God by trusting in his power. With the Spirit comes knowledge and fear of the Lord, Isaiah prophesies as well. The Messiah's knowledge is not a mere accumulation of facts. This isn't, well, he's just a really smart guy, but an experiential knowledge derived from an unbroken communion with the Father. His fear of the Lord is not a trembling fear, but a reverent all acknowledging the majesty and the holiness of God. These characteristics guide the Messiah's every action and decision, setting a standard for righteous living. And through the work of the Spirit and His close contact with God, this new leader will allow God to speak through His words and reveal Himself through His actions as if He is the image of the invisible God. These are characteristics of an ideal and charismatic royal leader who trusts in God. These gifts of the Spirit will enable the new Davidic ruler to govern very differently than Ahaz. You see, kings were ultimately responsible for establishing justice in each nation, and the establishment of a just society was an ideal of the ancient Near East. Godly kings like David, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah did what was just in their judgments and the expectations for the future included a strong emphasis on an ideal era of justice, righteousness, goodness. The Messiah delights in the fear of the Lord. The Messiah judges rightly. And His decisions are based on the true nature of the heart. You see, status, money political influence, they will not derail his perspective on justice. We live in a world where those things can get you out of a lot of things. And they can turn the decisions in the court system and in politics and various other places. But with the Messiah, those things will not derail his perspective on justice. He will judge rightly. And he stands in awe of God. You see, this idea is contrary to the, the emotions of the world. The Messiah's joy is to stand in awe of God. His joy is to tremble at the terrible prospect of displeasing God. This makes him utterly reliable in his judgments among men. His judgments are not based on appearance or, his, or the opinions of others. His joy is in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of man. So his rule is right. His rule is just. His rule is perfect. The righteous oppressed will be vindicated and the wicked will be killed, Isaiah says. But not only that, not only is this, these things, do these things characterize the Messiah, but there is also a peaceful kingdom envisioned in Isaiah. If you look at verses 6-9, through nine, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want to be honest with you. Verse 8 terrifies me, by the way. It's a peaceful kingdom, but the child plays over the hole of a cobra. Are you kidding me? I hate snakes. I do. I know you shouldn't say things like that, but I do. Satan's little hand puppet, I believe. So, What we see in these verses is a picture of something radically new. Isaiah's vision takes us to a kingdom where the natural order is transformed by the Messiah's presence. What he's laying out here is not natural. Kids playing over cobra holes. Are you kidding me? Lion and cow hanging out. You know, I mean, come on. It's a realm of unparalleled peace where predators and prey coexist and a child leads wild animals. Some of you kids are like, man, that sounds awesome. Like Drew and I had a debate the other day as to whether a gorilla would rip your face off or be friendly to you, right? The child would lead the gorilla apparently in this new kingdom. The Messiah's reign is not characterized by military conquest or oppressive rule, but by a profound peace that extends to the entire created order. This is not just humanity. This is the entire created order. And the summary of this point is given in verse 9. First negatively, then positively. He says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Hurting forces and destructive forces that touch animals and that touch children will be gone. How amazingly Isaiah gives the reason in the second part, because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a global kingdom where the Messiah reigns perfectly and the animals will behave according to the knowledge of God where the earth is filled with the knowledge of God and no longer suppressed. Changes even in nature are profound and pervasive. The Spirit of the King is so present and powerful that it fills the earth with the knowledge of God and it changes absolutely everything. A new earth, a new kingdom, one without sin and one without death. This is the Messiah and the Messiah's kingdom that Isaiah is pointing to. And what we know from Scripture is that Jesus is the one who brings this all to fruition. Second observation, Jesus as the messianic fulfillment. The hope of Isaiah's prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The entire biblical narrative weaves a thread of messianic anticipation from the promise of Genesis 3.15 to Isaiah's vision and beyond that. The arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem marks the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. As we dwell on the symbolism of the root, we're compelled to recognize that, again, that God often chooses the unexpected to reveal His sovereign plan. Jesse, a figure in the background of Israel's history, really. David takes the paramount place, right? And so Jesse kind of occupies this background position, but he represents the ordinary and the overlooked, the, the, the regular person in the sovereign plan of God to bring about His will on earth. Yet God's redemptive plan often unfolds through the seemingly insignificant. Think about Mary, Joseph. In the silence of Bethlehem, a nowhere town, by the way, this isn't a metropolis. 
silence of Bethlehem, a nowhere town, the root of Jesse emerged. A testament to God's unseen and often unexpected work. The Messiah, born in a stable, announced to shepherds, defies earthly expectations of royal grandeur. Once more, echoing the theme of God's unexpected and unconditional ways. This challenges us the way that God fulfilled His prophecies in Christ. This challenges us to trust in the providence of God even when we cannot perceive His hand at work. The angelic proclamation to the shepherds underscores the significance of this lowly birth. In Luke 2, 10 and 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Further, Isaiah's portrayal of the Messiah as the Prince of Peace resonates with the angel's proclamation at Jesus' birth. Remember, Isaiah envisioned in 6-9 through this peaceful kingdom where all of, all of the created order is reversed and the kingdoms of this world, the ones with which we experience every day, are characterized by quite the opposite. Our own earthly kingdom, our own country here is not characterized by peace nor is any other kingdom in this world. They're characterized by money, by power, by unrest, and by turmoil. We are constantly reminded each and every day that there is unrest in our earthly system. When we go to the grocery store, when we wake up in the morning and our body hurts, when we turn on the news, unrest in our own country and unrest around the world. We are very aware of the effects of sin which brought discord and brought disunity. But all of these things, church, all of these things are undone by the reconciling work of the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. The vision of a peaceful kingdom in Isaiah aligns with Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God. He speaks of a kingdom characterized by righteousness, justice, and transformative peace. And while the complete fulfillment awaits the eschatological reality, the future reality, Jesus inaugurates this kingdom through His earthly ministry and invites us to be participants in its unfolding. Further, Jesus' earthly ministry validates His identity as the promised Messiah. His teachings, His miracles, His compassion, they point to a divine authority that is beyond human understanding. As we've seen already through our time in Luke, Jesus possesses this power that even leaves His own disciples, His own followers in awe, asking themselves, who is this guy? Who is this man? As they marvel at the work that He does. But the ultimate expression of His redemptive mission is seen in His sacrificial death on the cross. Through His resurrection, Jesus conquers sin and death once for all. Securing our hope in eternal life, solidifying for us His identity as the Messiah who brought about a kingdom of peace. This is how Jesus brings peace. He brings peace through His own blood and He brings peace through His body. He brings peace between God and man. 
Jesus brings us hope because it was through His work in which we are reconciled to God. Isaiah's prophecy was not delivered to Israel to let Israel know that an earthly kingdom would one day be established with an earthly ruler that would rule them rightly by overthrowing all of their foes and making their earthly life or circumstances better now. Isaiah was pointing to Jesus, a greater ruler, a greater king, and a greater kingdom. He was pointing forward to a perfect kingdom in which a perfect king would rightly rule all of those who bow to his lordship. He pointed to a king who had the ability to do what other kings could not do. Absolve sins and act as a perfect atonement to make his people right with God. This this is the Messiah that Israel longed for. And this is the Messiah that the King has come in the person. This is the Messiah and and King that has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the perfect King. And once His kingdom is fully realized, it will be one of perfect peace that we will inherit. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon Christ. Jesus has perfect wisdom and understanding. Jesus has perfect counsel and might. Jesus has perfect knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord. Jesus judges rightly the hearts of man and is not swayed by earthly clout. And His kingdom is perfect righteousness and perfect peace. Jesus is our hope and His perfect kingdom with Christ is what we long for. Jesus Christ, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse. He is God's signal to the nations, verse 10 tells us. He judges with truth and calls people to be a people of righteousness and truth. Third observation. Hope in Christ, the Messiah of God. Let's consider and reflect upon the concept of hope within the biblical framework for just a moment. Hope in biblical terms is not a mere wishful thinking or optimism based on circumstances. It's not, I hope this gets done, or I hope this gets better, or I hope this happens. It is a confident expectation rooted in the promises of God. Our hope is not anchored in the fluctuating circumstances of life. They change. But in the unchanging character of a faithful God. Our hope is anchored in the same Messiah anticipated by Isaiah, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all God's promises. From the covenant with Abraham to the prophecies of the coming Messiah, the Bible unfolds this narrative of hope. In the darkest moments of Israel's history, hope was sustained by belief that God would fulfill His promises. Today, our hope rests on the ultimate fulfillment of these promises in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the first advent of Christ and His death and His resurrection. And our hope is in the imminent return of Christ in which He will consummate His promises to us. Bring us into the new heaven and new earth and rule perfectly among His people. This is totally foreign 
to what we know here on earth. But this hope is what pushes us. It's what fuels us. And it preserves us in the midst of life's challenges. Church, hope is not a passive expectation. But it's an active force that shapes our perspective and it shapes our actions. Shapes how we live. Shapes how we think. Shapes how we come in here on Sunday mornings. Shapes how we spend our money. How we spend our time. How we parent. What we'll build our marriage upon. It shapes everything. Hope in the finished work of Christ and His imminent return. In Romans 8, 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul speaks of hope as something that sustains us in the midst of challenges. It is a resilient assurance that God's purposes will prevail even when circumstances seem dire. Even when everything around you is crashing down, our hope is in the purpose of God, the plans of God, the unwavering promises of God found in Jesus Christ. And as we navigate the complexities of life, our hope in Christ becomes an anchor for our soul. It's not hope in a friend or a parent or my children or in anything else within the temporal world. It is within Christ the eternal. You see, it's easy for us to let our hope rest in our circumstances and let our circumstances dictate our hope. Think about Israel. This prophecy is made to Israel amid their foolishness 700 years before Jesus showed up in the incarnation. I can imagine, some of us can't wait seven minutes, imagine 700 years. I can imagine much of their hope was misdirected or misunderstood in thinking God was going to deliver them from all earthly captors. You can imagine they're hearing this looking at the Assyrians. They're hearing this throughout history, looking at various other people who are rising up against them. We know this is the case because that's what was expected when Jesus arrived. They expected that the Messiah would deliver them from Roman rule, the Jews. But church, Jesus did not come to change your circumstances or to, quote, make your life better. He didn't come to promise you complete physical health. He didn't come to promise you stacked bank accounts or a smooth existence here on this earth. It's easy for us to put our hope in changed circumstances. It's easy for us to go to Jesus when we need something, and we all know we're prone to do that, when we need something, when we need health, when we need wealth, when we need these various things, and then when those things come or when He blesses us with those things or that kind of need dies down, we find ourselves straying back away. It's easy to let our financial status, it's easy to let our health status or other things be where we place our hope. It's a reality. We all do it. It's easy to let these things dictate whether or not we're hopeful or hopeless. Now listen, those things are not bad and God does bless us in those ways and we're thankful for that. But if your hope is in those things, at the end of the day, they will fail you And we'll never be enough. Our hope is in the promises of God delivered to us in the Scriptures and in in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is that this world is not all that there is, that we are delivered from the power of sin and death through Jesus' death and resurrection, and that one day we will be a perfect, there will be a perfect place for us to dwell where our Savior and Lord reigns perfectly and rightly and justly with us in His midst. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. So I want to conclude with this, just 
A couple of thoughts. How do we cultivate hope this holiday season, this Advent season? How do we cultivate hope in the midst of life's challenges? We're all in the midst of some sort of challenge or whatever that may be. Most of us probably have more in common than we care to admit. Well, the answer lies in recognizing the enduring nature of biblical hope and its transformative power. Hebrews 6.19 describes hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And this imagery speaks to the stabilizing and grounding effect of hope in Christ in our lives. In times of uncertainty, maybe that's this Advent season, maybe it's this holiday season, hope in Christ becomes the anchor that keeps us steadfast, preventing us from being tossed by the waves of adversity. Again, our hope is not contingent on favorable circumstances, but on the unchanging character of God. Malachi 3.6, the Lord declares, I, the Lord, do not change. And this assurance becomes the foundation of our hope in a world that we live in where circumstances fluctuate. God's faithfulness remains constant. His promises steadfast. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus, you do not know this hope. You may hope in yourself, you may hope in your job, you may hope in your family, you may hope in your friends, you may hope in your fluctuating circumstances. And as you'll find out, if you haven't already, these things cannot sustain you and provide you with hope that you have been reconciled to God and that the eternal kingdom of peace awaits you. This morning, if you do not know Christ, I would ask you to turn from your sin and trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. And I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. The root of Jesse, the fulfillment of messianic promises. And the visionary kingdom of peace all converge in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we journey through this Advent season, may the anticipation of the Messiah stir within us a renewed sense of hope. And let us anchor our souls in the unchanging character of God. Trust in the promises fulfilled in Jesus. And as we reflect on the unexpected ways God works... May we know that God's providence weaves through the fabric of all of our lives. It's no accident that you're here this morning. It's providential. May the root of Jesse, our Messiah, be the anchor of hope as we navigate the complexities of life. And in a world yearning for transformative peace, may we be bearers of the Prince of Peace's message and instruments of His reconciling work. Church, this morning, let us hope in Jesus today and tomorrow the next day, forevermore. Pray with me.